and welcome to Why Christianity is False. This is a podcast in which I respond to a series of short articles and podcast episodes that was posted to a Christian apologetics website called Why Christianity is True. The first essay in that series was Does God Exist? by Tawa Anderson. And so this is my reply to Does God Exist? by Tawa Anderson. Before giving any arguments for the existence of God, Tawa says that the existence of God is necessary for meaning. He says, The book of Ecclesiastes poetically summarizes the life without God. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. The irony here is that Ecclesiastes actually says life is meaningless with God. Why? Well, for many reasons, but here's one. It says, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. So if the universe is ruled by the God of Abraham, this God has already decided for you what your meaning and purpose will be. And this will be convenient for those who prefer the life of a sheep and a slave, but detestable to those who have their own purposes already. I mean, what if Gandhi had stopped what he was doing to ask what Yahweh wanted from his life? In any case, Ecclesiastes is the last book you should be quoting if you want to argue that meaning requires the existence of God, because Ecclesiastes says that life is meaningless with God. More importantly, I would argue that it's not the source of a meaning or purpose that matters, but its quality. Alonzo Fife illustrates this with this story. He says, perhaps I was created by a god who got bored and who was seeking some way to entertain himself, and he came up with the idea of creating a planet and populating it with people who he programmed to have a strong disposition to accept religious teaching without question. And he then went to different groups and said, You are God's chosen children. You have a right and a duty to rule over all the world. All the others are infidels who should be converted or killed. And when this God was done, he sat back in his heavenly recliner with his heavenly beer and potato chips and watched the unfolding drama of Survivor Earth. And he saw that it was good, or at least he was entertained by all this violence. Would I prefer to be a toy built to generate conflict and drama for the sake of entertaining some god? Now, in such a case, it would be true that I was created for a divine purpose. But what really matters is the quality of the purpose, not its source. And in this case, our purpose has a particularly low quality. And not only would I prefer not to have such a purpose, I would go so far as to actively thwart God's purpose, if that was his purpose for us, and would count my life as having meaning in doing so. I would work to promote cooperation and well-being instead of conflict and suffering, and if this went against the purpose of my creator, then so be it. An Existential Argument First among Tawa's arguments for God is an existential argument from human religiosity. Tawa notes that every ancient and medieval culture was highly religious and that, quote, there is indeed a hole in our hearts that can only be filled with God, end quote. We'll tell that to the healthy, satisfied, well-educated atheists of Scandinavia and they'll just laugh at you. 
tell that to the most prestigious scientists and philosophers in the world, most of whom are atheists, and they'll laugh at you. Or tell that to the millions of fulfilled, moral, successful atheists around the world, and they'll laugh at you. The claim that, quote, there is a hole in our hearts that can only be filled by God, end quote, is empirically false. It is a shameless, cult-like attempt to prop up human insecurities so that people cling even harder to the superstitions that feed off their insecurity. When people leave such lies behind them and take note of all the meaning and morality and happiness that is available without fear and superstition, that is when they leave childish and comforting notions about gods behind. And I'm not just asserting this. I'm referring to the best supported thesis of secularization that has been proposed so far. Basically, according to the data, religion does not provide existential security. Instead, it literally thrives on existential insecurity. It thrives on poverty and ignorance and fear and instability and risk. The poorest nations in the world are the most religious. And when people live in a society that already provides them with existential security, with stability and safety and education and health care and job security, then people don't need gods anymore. And you can see this in lots of countries, uh, such as those in Scandinavia. Now, Tawa also notes that we humans yearn to escape death. We yearn for immortality. And he then makes an astonishing leap of logic. He says, quote, This yearning for eternity suggests that we exist for more than just this lifetime. End quote. No, it doesn't. Um, does my yearning to be the next Matthew Bellamy rock star suggest that I will be the next Matthew Bellamy? No. Wishful thinking does not indicate truth. The Kalam Cosmological Argument Third, Tawa offers a brief version of the Kalam Cosmological Argument. The Big Bang must have a cause, and the cause must be personal and transcendent, is how that goes. And there are a whole raft of problems with the Kalam Cosmological Argument, but here are just a few. First of all, the Kalam Cosmological Argument presupposes an A theory of time, but Physicists have known since Einstein that the A theory of time is false. This is old news. Um, I don't have time to go into the philosophy of time now, but you can look it up. Uh, second, it's hard to see how the universe could be self-caused or a necessary being, yes, but proposing a necessary being that is the opposite of everything we understand, a timeless, spaceless, omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipotent, personal being without a brain, that's a far worse problem. So positing God doesn't solve these problems, it just makes them much worse. And then also the Kalam cosmological argument employs intuitions and language in a kind of slippery and sneaky way that when examined carefully does not actually support the aims of the Kalam cosmological argument. And for the details on this you can see Wes Morstan's paper must the beginning of the universe have a personal cause? The fine-tuning argument. The fine-tuning argument notes that certain fundamental constants of the universe exist within a narrow range of values that are life-permitting, and if any of these values were slightly different, life as we know it could not exist. 
So it looks like a transcendent being has tinkered with the values to make things come out just right so that life could exist. And this is Tawa's next argument. The first problem with this argument was pointed out by evangelical Christian philosophers Tim and Lydia McGrew in a paper called Probabilities and the Fine-Tuning Argument, a Skeptical View. And the problem is very technical, but it goes like this. The possible range of values for these constants is, as far as we know, infinite. So the chances that the values would fall within a very small range of values are literally equal to the chances that they would fall within a very large range of values. So a fine-tuning argument is just as powerful as a, you might call it a coarse-tuning argument, which is to say it's not very powerful at all. Uh, maybe that didn't make any sense if it didn't read the paper for the details. Uh, but a second problem is that the argument seems to presuppose that life or intelligent life or consciousness or whatever has intrinsic value. The universe with organic chemistry is intrinsically more valuable than a universe with you know, clouds of singing gas or a universe with one hydrogen atom or whatever. But I've never been shown a shred of evidence that life has intrinsic value in that way. I'm only told that it has intrinsic value because it feels to us like life has intrinsic value. Well, duh, we are living beings. Of course we think we are valuable. But I'm still waiting for evidence on this one. So, yes, Christianity is a more comforting worldview for those who trust their feelings more than evidence, but we already knew that. And if that's what they're going for, then Christians should just stop pretending that they're responding to the evidence uh, instead of their feelings. And a third problem with the fine-tuning argument is the same one that I gave a minute ago uh, for the cosmological argument. Adding a timeless, spaceless, omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, personal being without a brain only makes the explanatory problems here worse, not better. A moral argument. Tawa's fourth argument is a moral one. He says, quote, if moral standards are not grounded in something transcendent, that is, outside of humanity, it is impossible to say, as we all do, that anything is always morally wrong or right. Simply put, if there is no God, then the evil that men do is not evil, it simply is. End quote. And this is a rewording of Bill Craig's moral argument, which says that if God doesn't exist, then objective morality doesn't exist, but objective morality does exist, so God must exist. And how do we know that objective morality exists? Here's what Tawa says. He says, quote, Deep down, everyone knows that morality is objective. End quote. And that's it. It's the only argument he gives. So once again, Tawa's argument depends on feelings rather than evidence. So right off the bat, his whole argument is without evidential support. But let me push further. I'd like to argue that if God is the source of morality, then morality is not objective. And my argument is very simple, because objective morality has typically been defined as morality not grounded in the attitudes or nature of a person. And when morality is grounded in a particular person or group of persons, that is called subjective morality. And here are some examples. I mean, individual subjectivism says that right and wrong are grounded in the attitudes of a particular person. 
cultural subjectivism says that right and wrong are grounded in the attitudes of a particular culture. There's a, another subjective theory called an ideal observer theory, which says that right and wrong are grounded in the attitudes of a hypothetical person who would be perfectly informed and unbiased and all that. And God-based ethics says that this ideal observer really exists and its name is God. God-based ethics is a subjective moral theory. It's grounded in the attitudes of a person. The way Christian apologists have avoided this embarrassing fact is to twist the term objective morality so that instead of meaning morality not grounded in the attitudes of a person or persons, for them it now means morality not grounded in the attitudes of a particular species of primate, homo sapiens. But that's just silly. I mean, if a giant alien appeared in the sky tomorrow and some people decided that right and wrong were grounded in the attitudes of this alien, would that be you know, regardless of its truth, a theory of objective morality, just because it was grounded in the attitudes of a person who didn't belong to Homo sapiens? Of course not. So if theists want to say that God-based morality is objective, but only in the sense that an alien-based morality is objective, then fine, but I'm not impressed. And I don't think that's the kind of objective, quote-unquote, morality that our intuitions presuppose even if our feelings provided good evidence that morality was objective. So the moral argument for God falls back on itself by revealing what Christian apologists try to hide, that God-based morality is a subjective theory of morality in the same way that an alien-based theory of morality is a subjective theory of morality. So there you go. I didn't even have to mention <laughs> the Euthyphro dilemma. Concluding thoughts. Tawa ends with a request. He says, quote, I wish to conclude with a personal appeal. I entreat you to not close your mind to the possibility of God, end quote. Now, I agree. Anything is possible. We have to keep an open mind. But don't open your mind so widely that your brains fall out. Don't be gullible. Don't bow down to your feelings and intuitions. Seek out more reliable ways of knowing things. Your mind should be open, but it should have a strong filter, because most claims are false, simply by virtue of the great number of claims that are being made. So make use of the tools available to you, logic, critical thinking, science, and so on. I mean, consider this. Consider the principle of non-locality in quantum mechanics, which says that a particle can affect another particle on the other side of the galaxy instantaneously with nothing traveling between them. Now that's just weird and absurd. It sounds like magic to me. But here's the thing. Non-locality in quantum mechanics is supported by tons of specific, tightly modeled evidence. So I accept it. So have an open mind, even to things that seem crazy. But don't accept crazy things because of bad arguments, feelings, and self-defeating arguments. Accept crazy things only when you are given good evidence for their truth. That's it for this episode of Why Christianity is False. Next up, I'll be responding to an essay by Jim Wallace. See you next time.